good to be back with you today. It's so good to gather together on this Lord's Day. I was just thinking as we were singing how beautiful it is to be in this facility with the light shining through the stained glass windows. I just, uh, I've actually never been able to pastor a church that had stained glass windows. So this is my experience to be able to enjoy that. And it's such a beautiful facility that God's opened the door for us to use here. We are in 2 Thessalonians at our church, and so I'm going to take you there again today and just uh, look at the passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We spent a couple of uh, Sundays already just in these few verses, and this morning I attempted to try to finish some of this section of Scripture and was unable to, and uh, I doubt I'll finish it today here either. But what I would like to talk to you about is the revenge of God on sinners and the rapture of the saints. The revenge of God on sinners and the rapture of the saints. And the passage is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is probably one of the most definitive, concise, and precise statements in all of the scripture that sum up the return of Christ. And Paul the Apostle had the unique ability to do this because he no doubt was brilliant in his mind, also theologically well-equipped, but also having the Spirit of God is a great help whenever you write down these words. And so we are given that here. Now, just to give you a quick context before I read the text, the Thessalonians were under intense persecution when Paul wrote this letter. In fact, if you want to go back and read in the book of Acts in chapter 17, you can read there at the very beginnings of the Thessalonican church how there was already persecution breaking out that was coming primarily from the Jewish community of the synagogue there, but also there were mobs that were gathered together to attack and to cause trouble for Paul and the people at Thessalonica. And so here in this context, Paul has come in and he's preached the gospel and there have been a number of people that have forsaken their idols and they've come to Christ and First and Second Thessalonians are some of the most encouraging words in all of the New Testament to a church that is really a saved and sanctified and second coming church. That's exactly what kind of church this is. Of all the letters in the New Testament, I cannot think of one that Paul wrote that has more information about the return of Christ than what is in these two letters. When we get to 2 Thessalonians, he again takes us to that very important event. This is usually the time when churches celebrate the first Advent. This is Advent season, whenever we talk about the birth of Christ, and we spend weeks literally reminding ourselves of that through the reading of Scripture and the singing of the hymns. But this event is the second Advent, and the second Advent is totally unlike the first advent. Jesus came, born of a virgin. He was humble. He grew up as a young boy into a young man, then to an adult. He had nothing of his own that he could claim. Many times he lived in his friends' homes whenever he had to find a place to sleep. He conducted his ministry. He did miracles, signs, and wonders. He was accused, betrayed, and then put to death through crucifixion. And then he was buried, rose again on the third day, spent days with his disciples, and then ascended up into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father on high. That's the first advent. 
Whenever he comes back, he will not come back as a humble babe in a manger. He will come riding on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. And that pictures in the book of Revelation judgment. He comes as a holy God, majestic and glorious, but he comes giving judgment. It's not something that anyone who would be lost in that condition at that time would want to experience. It has horrors that are recorded in the Bible unlike anything we've ever read before. Let me just read the section now. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 6, kind of right in the middle of the sentence. But I'll start here in verse 6. It says, After all, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. He's coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. In the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi has these words to say. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, and they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi reminds us that God is coming in judgment, but in the same text, he reminds us that God is a God who rescues his own, that he brings healing and life and joy to those who are his. The ones who are the ones who fear God are the ones that he will rescue. But to the others, he's bringing fire, he's bringing judgment, and he's going to consume them. All the years of evil and sin and persecution and hatred that has come from the world against the church and the people of God will be over. And the Son, the Son of God, will rise. It almost sounds like the Apostle Paul, when he wrote 2 Thessalonians 1, was an avid reader of the Old Testament, doesn't he? Because he sure sounds like Malachi. He sounds a lot like the Old Testament minor prophets. How they talked about the judgment of God to come. Paul teaches that there is a coming judgment that will literally consume the ones who are Christ rejectors. The ones who are unbelievers. The ones who are the wicked in the world. First Thessalonians chapter 1 when Paul was reminding us of the believers there in Thessalonica who had turned from idols to serve the true and living God, he said that this group of believers are those that wait for his son from heaven, who raised him from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's in 1 Thessalonians 1. He talked about there that it is this God who is coming, Jesus, 
who delivers us from the wrath to come. The word deliver is the Greek word ruaman. It means to be rescued from danger, delivered from evil. It has the idea of freeing from harm or taking out of imprisonment, if you will. Peter talked about this very thing. He said that God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the world. He went on to say this, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of trial and temptation and to reserve the unjust for punishment for the day of judgment. So God rescues the righteous and he judges the unrighteous. That's what you find in verse 6 and 7 of 2 Thessalonians, if you'll look at it again with me. It begins by telling us in verse 6 that it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Then in verse 7, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now there's two things that Paul mentions right at the beginning here. He's telling us that God will repay or pay back with tribulation the ones who trouble you. And he also is going to give you who are troubled rest whenever the Lord comes back. Immediately we learn this. God repays or pays back the wicked and he rescues the righteous. That's what God does. The word there in verse 6, righteous thing, it actually means uh, morally righteous or in accordance with justice and law. It's a Greek word that is very common in the New Testament, dikaios or dikios. It actually has the idea of being in alignment with what God is or who God is or being in accordance with what God requires. When you trace it back to its parallel word in the Hebrew text, the word that is the synonym for this in the Hebrew language means to be straight or level. It has the idea of being straightforward or agreeable or what is right or what is upright or just. And so what it's telling us is this. It is a right thing. It is a just thing. Or another way of saying this, it is a holy thing that God would repay or pay back to those who are ungodly, those who trouble you with affliction. I think the NAS says that he will pay back affliction with those, he will pay back those who afflicted you with affliction. And the idea is that they're persecuting them and they're causing them all types of trouble and God's going to bring vengeance on them for what they've, what they've done. So it's a morally right thing. It's, it's a just thing for God to pay back those who have afflicted the people of God. He says in verse 6 that he will repay with tribulation or affliction. The Greek word, thlebo, T-H-I-B-O, it means to be confined to a narrow space. It has the idea of being under pressure and this being afflicted. is suffering hardship. So these Christians, as Paul writes this context here, tells us that God will avenge his people. In other words, you attack the people of God, you are literally attacking God. Whenever the Old Testament talked about Israel, on one occasion it said that Israel was like the apple of God's eye. And whenever you would attack Israel, it was like poking the finger in the eye of God. And this is an amazing thing to consider because you and I are the people of God. And the Bible's telling us that God will avenge his own people for his own name. 
If you attack, afflict, cause trouble, persecute, kill the people of God, you will be punished by God. That's what he's saying. This is found in the Old Testament, a number of places like Deuteronomy 32, 41. It says, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold of judgment, I will render vengeance on my enemies. I will repay those who hate me. And I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives and from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Then it says this, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he, that is God, will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. God's going to bring vengeance on those who have attacked the people of God. It says it like that in Isaiah also, chapter 49. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood like sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. There's a very interesting passage over in Revelation, chapter 6, that talks about the souls of those who are under the throne of God, who have been persecuted and put to death for their testimony. What is most amazing is the dialogue there between the souls who have been slain and God. It says in Revelation 6, 9, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain or put to death for the word of God and the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice. So these are the ones who have died for their faith. Their souls are up in heaven now. And they're crying out to God. And it says in the text that they're crying out and asking, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In other words, Lord, when will you avenge your people? When will you punish those who have punished us? Also, in that same text, it says, Then there was a white robe given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. In other words, God says, I've got a number that are going to die this way. And when that number is complete, which only God knows, then I will bring judgment. So God's going to avenge his own. In Revelation 16, 5, there's an amazing text. In the middle of all the judgments that God brings, it says this, that he heard an angel saying, you are righteous, O Lord. The one who is, who was, and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. So for those who think they can get away with it, that they can persecute the church of God and the people of God and go along as if nothing's happened, the Bible says that you will be punished by God directly for what you have done to the people of God. You do not mess with the people of God and you do not attack the bride of Christ or you will be personally attacked by God. That's what he's saying in this text. Now, who are these that do this? Well, it's defined in verse eight. Look at second Thessalonians one, eight. It says that these are the ones that do not know God and those that do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the last part of the verse. In other words, the ones that are going to receive the vengeance of God, the ones that are going to receive the punishment are the ones who do not know God and the ones that do not obey the gospel of Christ. Now, 
I believe these are two separate groups. They could be one, but I believe they're two separate groups and there are two different levels of accountability. The first is this. He says that there are those who do not know God. Now, what he means by that is this, not that they don't know about God, but they don't know God. That is, they don't have a relationship with God. They know about God because both Romans chapter one and also Psalm 19 clearly states to us that God has revealed himself in creation so much so that all of humanity is without excuse. There doesn't, it doesn't matter if you live over in a remote island somewhere and all you've ever known is headhunters. And that's it. And you've never heard a gospel proclamation. You've never seen a vacation Bible school sign. You've never seen a missionary show up. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that God says, the revelation that I give of myself through creation itself is enough to hold you accountable and without excuse. Romans 1 and verse 20 says that. So this group is the group that doesn't know God. They don't have a relationship with God, but they are accountable for what they know. They are accountable for a certain level of revelation and they will be judged accordingly. But there's another group and the other group is at the end of verse eight. And these are the ones that do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now these have a different level of revelation. They not only know God is out there through creation, but now they've heard the gospel. They've heard the truth about God and Christ and what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so now they have heard it, but it says in the text, they do not obey the gospel. They do not obey it, which by the way, is a lost term whenever it comes to evangelism. We often talk about you need to accept Christ or, or pray a prayer or whatever. And the Bible says you are to obey the gospel. We shouldn't be calling on people to invite them we should be commanding them because the gospel is a command and the command is to believe, the command is to repent, and the command is to confess. God's not leaving it open. He's not saying, here's an option for you. Take one of the three. He says, obey me. And he addresses the will of the sinner and calls on them to obey. But these did not. It says at the end of verse eight, they did not obey the gospel of Christ. And they are held accountable for that. Not only their knowledge of God through creation, but the specific special revelation that comes through the knowledge of the gospel through the written form we have in our Bibles and the preaching of the gospel that comes through evangelism in churches and everywhere else it occurs. So these are the two groups that are actually causing the Thessalonian Christians all the trouble. Some of them don't know God because they're still worshiping idols. And then there are those who've heard the gospel, maybe the Jews, maybe the people of the synagogues, maybe some of the Gentiles in that area. But instead of them obeying the gospel, they have rejected it. And now they are outright trying to give all kinds of trouble to the people of God there in Thessalonica. And Paul just simply says, listen, as a way of comfort, just so you know this, I'm going to punish every one of them. That's what he's telling them. That's what he's telling them. It would be no different than someone coming into your home and attacking one of your children. You would want justice. You would want something done and something that is just to be done. And so in this context, these are the ones that have assaulted, afflicted, persecuted, and in some cases killed some of the people of God. And God says, I will punish you for that. This is not the sweet, loving gentle God of most of evangelicalism today. 
This is the God of the Bible. The God right in the New Testament. Now, look a little further with me, and we ask the question then, when will this occur? When will this occur? Well, it tells us in chapter 1 again, verse 7, this is going to happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. The word revealed is the Greek word we get apocalypse from. It's the idea of the unveiling of Christ. Now, to the believer, we already know Christ. We don't know what he looks like in person, but we know him. Now, to the world, they don't have a clue. And the apocalypse is not so much an unveiling to the believer as it is an unveiling to the world. Because when Jesus comes, he's going to come in the sky, visibly, bodily, in the clouds, and the Bible says every eye will see him. Everyone will see who this God is that they have rejected, the ones that they have blasphemed, the ones that they have made fun of, the one that they have rejected his gospel. They will see him because the Lord Jesus, it says in verse 7, will be revealed from heaven, notice this, with his mighty angels, his powerful angels. They're all coming with him. And they're coming with him to do his bidding, as we'll see later on what some of that is. But he's coming to bring judgment. But also note in the same text in verse 10, it identifies some more about this coming. It says in verse 10, this is going to happen when he comes in that day. When he comes in that day. Now, this is very specific and very important for you to understand. Because what Paul is saying is this. This punishment of the wicked, this punishment of the unbeliever and the one that does not know God, is going to happen when Jesus comes back in that day. And that day is very, very important. It is a technical term for what we know as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is talked about many, many times in the Old and the New Testament, and it refers to a, an apocalyptic event. In other words, this is an eschatological, which is a long term to mean future event, the last things event. And then the word apocalypse means the unveiling, but it's an eschatological, apocalyptical judgment. God is going to reveal his judgment in the last day. And that day is the day of the Lord. It has historically been known as a day of judgment. It is a specific event in the future that is coming on this world, the whole world. And it's not to be understood as a 24-hour day. Now, I'm one that will defend to my death a 24-hour day of creation. I believe 100%. It was evening and morning was the first day. It was evening and morning the second day. That was a 24-hour solar day. It took six days for God to create the world and everything in it and one day to rest. And that's exactly what it is meant by that term. But when you come to this text and you see it throughout the Old Testament, and he uses the term, the day of the Lord, he's not talking about a 24-hour solar day. He's using it in the sense like someone would say, well, man has had his day, now God will have his day. And that's the idea behind it. This is the day that is going to include a series of events. It's going to include Jesus literally showing up in the sky, in the clouds. It's going to include him bringing his angels with him, the resurrection of the saints, from the grave and the rapturing or the catching away of the saints that are alive is going to involve 
the, uh, the escalation and revealing of an antichrist or a man of sin. It's going to be the supernatural outpouring of divine wrath on this planet and on the unbelieving Christ rejectors. It's going to include the judgment of the sheep and goats and many, many more things that are included in the day of the Lord. And verse 10 is referring to that day. It is a period of judgment and it will commence when Jesus shows up. You see, a lot of people have the idea that Jesus is going to come secretly. No one will know it. He's going to take his people away, disappear for seven years, and then show back up. Actually, that's not what scripture teaches. I know that's a dispensational view of the whole thing, but really what the Bible talks about is this. There's one coming. There are many events in that coming. When Jesus comes, the Greek word that is commonly used is the word parousia or parousia, depending on your Greek teacher. And so that word means presence. It doesn't mean he's coming from one place to the other. It's the arrival of someone and their presence remains. That's the word parousia. And when Jesus comes, he's going to show up in the sky. He's going to take his people out of here and rescue them from the wrath of God that's coming. And he will remain pouring out his wrath in the sky. In fact, you note in the book of Revelation, whenever they know where these judgments are coming from, it basically says that they blaspheme the God of heaven because of the judgments coming upon them and they do not repent of their evil deeds. There's no question about where it's coming from. There's no debate about it. No one's going to a seminary looking up a book because Jesus Christ is literally in the sky pouring out judgment. Now, when you read the book of Revelation and you read some of these supernatural judgments that are coming, you can also tell that it's not going to last long. Things get burned up awfully quick. And there's a whole lot of judgments that happen that can kill a whole lot of people very fast. It's very, very, very dramatic and very, very horrific to say the least. Well, Paul talked about this day a number of times. Um, he refers to it like in 2 Timothy 1.12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and whom I have persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him until that day. That's the day he's talking about, the day of the Lord. 2 Timothy 4, 8. Finally, he says, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. Paul told the Thessalonians, he said, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Peter talked about this day. He said in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works, and it will be burned up. And Jesus also talked about this day. He said in Matthew 7.22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons? In your name and done many wonders in your name. And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness in that day. Luke 10, 12 says, Jesus saying these words, but I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my father only. So this phrase is used repeatedly in the New Testament to refer to an eschatological apocalyptic judgment that is in the future when Jesus shows up. But it was also used in the Old Testament. 
Many times, in fact. Some of them were prophetic to lead into the future. Some of them were historic. In other, in other words, when God would judge in the Old Testament, oftentimes it was referred to as the day of the Lord. Because it was a time of judgment. It was a time of darkness. Listen to the way the prophets describe it. Joel 1.15, alas, it says, the day, that great day, the day of the Lord is at hand, and it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Joel 2.1 says, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. It is a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of thick clouds and darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. It's fire, fire that devours them, and behind them is the flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Then it says in Joel 2.30, And I will show the wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and pillars and smoke, and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Zephaniah had some words on this in chapter 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near. It hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There is mighty men that shall cry out. That day will be a day of wrath a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. It is a day where the trumpet will alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured. By the fire of his jealousy. And he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. That's Old Testament depictions of the day of the Lord. Some of them historic times of God's wrath. And then also future prophetic events. So this is not a nice day. This day of the Lord. is a, It is not a day of light. It is a day of immense darkness. It's not a day of life. It's a day of death. It's not forgiveness. It's fury. That's what it is. It's not a time, by the way, to be lost in your sin. You don't want to be lost going into this day. You don't want to be blind in your self-righteousness going into this day. And you don't want to be in bondage to your evil passions going into this day. This is the day of the Lord that is going to judge the wicked, the unbeliever, the man who does not know God, the man who does not obey the gospel of Christ. It is like being outside the ark, but you're in the raging flood of the wrath of God. There's no way in and no protection for the one who has rejected the cause of repentance. So what will God do to the unbelievers in that day? Looking at the text again, going back to 2 Thessalonians 1, in verse 6, it tells us three things he's going to do. To those that have caused trouble and affliction on the people of God, those who disobey the gospel, and those who are ones that don't know God, he says in verse 6, I will repay with affliction. Verse 8, I will take vengeance on those. And verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That should be sobering to listen to. To know that there are people that you know, that we all know, that are going to face this. This is not fiction. This is not something made up. This is what's coming in the future. For anyone who rejects the gospel, 
any one of your friends or family that have rejected Christ, unless they repent, they're going to face this. Notice what it says in verse 9. We start there. Because this is the end of it all. This is where it finally ends up. It ends up that they are punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is a horrible thing to consider. The idea of being punished is from two words in the original language, and they can literally be translated this way, that they will pay the penalty. You kind of remind yourself of a verse over in Romans 6, that the wages of sin is what? Death. The paycheck. That's what it means. In other words, the more we sin, the more we earn. Every day that we sin, we rack up payment. It's like a job, okay? You've got a job and you work 30 hours, you expect to be paid for how much? 30 hours. You work 40 hours, well, you want 40 hours. You work 60 hours, you want 40 hours plus 20 hours overtime. You want to be paid for what you've done. Well, every time a sinner sins, he ends up storing up for a big paycheck. Everyone. And so what it's telling us is that whenever Jesus comes, he is going to pay back the ones who have rejected him and have sinned against him, and they will pay the penalty. They will pay the penalty. And that penalty is noted in the verse. It comes with everlasting destruction. One sin, just one, would be enough to banish every single person into hell forever. But sinners have done a whole lot more than one sin. All of us in here have sinned probably millions of times in our lifetime. There's times we're sinning and we don't even know we're sinning. We're sleeping in sin. We're born that way. We're bent that way as Martin Luther would use the term. So it's a natural thing for us to sin and to rebel and not obey what God tells us to do. But those sins will be paid for. Now you can have Jesus pay for them, what he did on the cross, or you can pay for them yourself. The infinite son of God, who is God in the flesh, took upon himself the sins, all the sins of those that would believe, and he paid for all of those sins. But if you reject that one and only sacrifice, then you have to pay for your sin. And that means your sin will have to be paid for for all eternity. All eternity. That's why he uses the word eternal destruction. The word destruction should not be confused with annihilation. There are those today that are actually adopting the view of annihilation. There are some books, obviously with YouTube out there, there are those who are teaching that what this actually refers to is that whenever someone rejects God, that they will be finally and completely annihilated. There is no such thing as eternal torment in hell. When in fact, the Bible clearly contradicts that idea. Annihilation is really not eternal punishment because annihilation is you go out of existence. That's what that is. But the Bible teaches eternal punishment, everlasting torment. And just to show you what I mean, I mean, there are, there are words that are used to refer to this. The word here in verse 9, translated everlasting, it comes from a Greek word, ionios. It comes from the root word, ion or eon. And whenever you hear that, you probably hear the word eon or age, because a lot of people like to take the word eon and say, well, that's what that means. It means that you're only going to suffer for just a short period of time, and then you'll be taken out of existence. And they take the root word, 
eon or ion, and they mean by that that it only means an age. The problem with that is, that's not what Paul uses here. He doesn't use the root word, which by the way is used in other places of the Bible to refer to forever and eternal. But here he uses the word ionios. And that word is translated 74 times in the New Testament. 71 of those times is translated eternal and everlasting. The other three times it is translated since the world began in Romans 16, before time began in 2 Timothy 1, and translated forever in Philemon verse 15. And the point is, is that there's not one time that the Greek word ionios has any hint of a temporary span of time. All of them refer to a long, eternal period of time. Even the word eon or ion that people often go to to try to prove that you are going to be punished only for a short time and then annihilated, that word that is used all throughout the New Testament is indeed translated 20 times the word age. But it's also translated seven times world. And what it means by that is, is like the verse that says that the devil is the God of this, not world, but the God of this age. It's translated world, but it means the word, the idea of age. But what's interesting about even the word ion, the little short root word, it is predominantly translated forever. Like for instance, it's translated in the New Testament 27 times by the word forever. And then it's translated another 20 times forever and forever. So the point is, is that you're going to have a hard time getting around these verses that specifically address the eternal nature of hell and the eternal nature of punishment because the Greek word, ionios, is clearly to be understood as eternal and everlasting, not annihilation. A lot of the reasons why people want to try to adopt the view of annihilation is because they want to somehow save God or protect God from some unjust thing that God is actually carrying out punishment not only a day, not only a year, not only a hundred years, but forever and ever. And some would say, well, that's just not just. That's just not righteous. Well, the problem with that is, first of all, we don't understand what holiness is. Secondly, we don't understand just how, sin, sin, how sinful sin is and how much of a rejection, rebellion of God is. Like R.C. Sproul said many years ago, that whenever you and I sin, just one sin, we commit cosmic treason against God against the highest authority in the entire universe. And not only have we done it once, but we've done it thousands and thousands of times. And so we are due eternal punishment for that reason. And that's what Paul argues here. And it should not be understood any less than that. In verse 9, that they will be punished with everlasting destruction. The word destruction means ruin. Not annihilation, but ruination. It has the idea of becoming worthless or meaningless or purposelessness it's used that way when it refers to the rich who get rich and then fall into traps and they become destroyed it doesn't mean they go out of existence it's the same word it means they ruin their lives that's what happens and so it is in this text that those who have rejected christ are punished with everlasting ruination and then it gives a couple of qualifiers uh, to help us to understand exactly what that's like. 
And in verse 9 it says that it is being punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, this is really sobering to consider because the word presence is the translation of the Greek word prosopon. Prosopon is a word that is commonly translated face, like you're in my face or I see you with my face. It's very intimate, it's close, and the idea is that you are literally banished from the face of the Lord. Now, what is important to remember is that in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, it tells us specifically there that every person who is an unbeliever through the history of the world is resurrected and brought up to this great white throne judgment. And at the very beginning of the declaration of that judgment, it talks about that this one is the one who sits on the throne whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. In other words, these people are brought right into the very presence of God and they see the God who created all things and then they're banished from the very face of God forever. This presence, by the way, is something that they will be eliminated from. It is described by the word from in the verse 9. The word from, apo, is the Greek preposition. It means to be set apart from, sent away from, or to be apart from. It's described like this in Matthew 25, 41. Then he will also say to those who are on the left hand, depart from me. Depart from me. Well, if you're departing from God in heaven, there's only one place to go. And it's hell. You don't want to hear the word depart from me in heaven. Matthew 25, 46 says, and these will go away. They will go away into everlasting punishment. Luke 16 reminds us of what this is like in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It says, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. In other words, once you're separated, you're permanently separated. There is no coming back at all. You are sent away from the very presence and the face of God. Now, there needs to be a distinction made, though, between the presence of God or the presence of Christ in his face and the omnipresence of God. Because even in hell, even in the destruction of the ungodly in hell, they will never be fully, completely banished from the omnipresence of God. Because in hell itself, even, they will experience the justice, wrath, and holiness and righteousness of God. What they will not experience is the love, mercy, grace, long-suffering, and patience, and kindness of God. That will be gone. But they will be fully experiencing the very omnipresence of God in hell, in his justice and his wrath. A second point that Paul brings up here in verse 2, or rather the verse here, verse 9 I believe it is, is that they will be banished from the glory of his power. The glory of his power. You know, when you read commentaries on this, there's a number of people that kind of settle right in this area. And what I mean by that is this. They conclude that what is meant by that phrase, being banished from the glory of his power, just simply means that you are, you are set apart from the visible display of God's splendor. That you're not going to be there to enjoy, participate in, have pleasure in the beauty of, 
of God, the joy of God, the peace of God, because you're going to be put in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The smoke of their torment goes up forever. In other words, no more glory, no more pleasure in seeing God at all. None of that. You're separated from that. But I began to look at that and I was not comfortable with what that was saying because I didn't believe that to be really what was in mind here. And what drove me to think that was the last word there where it says that you are separated from the glory of his power. And I was thinking, what is that? I mean, I can understand being separated from his glory. Yes. But separated from the glory of his power? What power are we talking about? I fully expected when I looked at the text to see a Greek word that is very common that is translated power. And that's the word dunamis. We get the word dynamite from it. It's used to refer to the creative power of God. It's used often to refer to the power of Christ in miracles. And when God made things, he used his power to do so. But that's not the word that is used here. It's actually a Greek word, iskous. It sounds kind of strange, but the word has to do with might. Or more specifically, strength or capability. Or as one lexicon said, the ability to do something or to accomplish something. I found this lexicon rather interesting on this word. That the word comes from a root word to mean force. Or the idea of forcing something or overcoming some resistance. So it's used in the context of, or the idea of being able to accomplish something, to have the force to accomplish something, the capability to do something, the strength to do something. So when I read that, I thought, well, that's nice and that's interesting, but what does that mean? I still couldn't understand what it meant to be separated from that. So you're separated from God's ability to do something. You're separated from his strength. Okay. I mean, if you're separated from God, you're separated from all of that. What is the point? So I thought, well, I'll go and do a simple word study. And I checked where that word was used on every occasion in the New Testament. And one of the ways you want to find out how a word is to be understood is how is it used in other places? How does the author use it initially? How do other authors use it? How is it used in the whole genre of the New Testament? And this word, iskous, is used 11 times in the New Testament. And that word, 10 times, has something to do with calling on us to love God, like you're to love the Lord your God with all your might, there it is, that's the word, all your ability, all your capability, all your strength, but it's also used in reference to salvation, that God saves us with his might, with his ability. It's used that way when it refers to salvation, it's used that way when it refers to sanctification, it's used that way when it talks about God specifically in the book of Revelation, whenever there's praise given to him for what he's done. And that's always in the context of how he has saved someone. So as I begin to look at that, I thought, you know what? I believe I know what Paul's talking about here. That not only are you separated from the very face of God, the intimate face of God forever, but you're also separated from the very ability of God to save. The ability, the might, the strength that God has to overcome your resistance and to save you. You do realize, I know you do here especially, that every single person in hell could be saved. Right? I mean, they, they, would, they would be saved the same way you and I are saved. 
We are completely hostile and resistant to the gospel of Christ. And God in his mighty power comes down and overcomes our resistance by his strength and his ability. That's why it even says in John 6 that no man can come to the Father except he draw them. And the word can is the word dunamis. It has the idea of having the power to do so. But the reason why we are able to come is because God enables us to come through his strength, through his ability, through his power. And the point is, is that the ones who have been banished into this eternal hell are separated, not only from the face of Christ, but also from the very ability of God to save. It's over is the point. There's no second chance. No purgatory to go pay for your sin for a while and get out. There's no chance that God's going to show up a thousand years from now and somehow redeem people out of hell. No, you're separated from it forever. The glory of his ability, his might, you're separated from it. There's a passage over in Revelation 14 that is amazing to consider because it talks about this eternal torment that is coming for the unbeliever. And it says it like this. This is Revelation 14, 9. Then a third angel followed saying with its loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, he himself shall not drink. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. Then it says in verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they shall have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And the point is in that text, what stands out to me is, is that their torment ascends forever and ever. And there's the word ion and ion. But it says to qualify that just so you understand what he's saying. They have no rest day or night. If you're annihilated, you rest forever. It's over. But this torment goes on and on and on and on. And there's no rest. There's no break. There's no stopping. There's no ending at all to any of this. But you know, that's not all of it. That's just the end of it all. In other words, that's the culmination of all the wrath of God. That's what God will do at the final end. But before we get to the final end, there's a whole lot more that's coming. The Bible even talks about in Romans chapter 2 that those who have rejected Christ are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Not one evil deed, one unjust work, one evil thought, one sinful act will go unpunished. Every single sinful act of every single person who has rejected Christ will be judged. Every one of them. We hear about the horrific things going on in our world today and some of the things I, I remember recently hearing about some of the details that happened over in Afghanistan whenever we abandoned a lot of our people over there and abandoned Christians over there and families over there. And some of those that were coming in there were doing horrific things to the women and the children. And you wonder, you know, where's justice? Where's judgment? Who's going to stop this? And finally, in the end, God will have his day. No one gets away with it. No one gets away. They might get away today in the human realm. They might not be brought to a court or a jail or judgment here. But I grant you, it will come 
In fact, the Bible talks about it not only in the sense of eternal judgment, but it talks about it as eschatological judgment, meaning that there's a future judgment on this planet that God's going to bring here. John the Baptist talked about it when he said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came out to his baptism, he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What wrath is he talking about? He's talking about the wrath coming on this world. Who warned you? Paul talked about it. He says this, um, as I shared earlier in 1 Thessalonians 1, that these Christians were waiting for Jesus to come up, to come, waiting for the Son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then Paul talked about that as a believer, that God did not appoint us to wrath. Well, you know, the flip side of that is this. If he appointed, if he didn't appoint us to wrath, that means he appointed somebody. Somebody got appointed to that wrath. And it's the ones who do not obey, the ones who reject the gospel of Christ. Hebrews refers to this coming judgment as a certain fearful expectation of judgment. John talked about it. He talked about it in the book of Revelation. He talked about the time whenever Jesus was going to come. And he said this, that the men, the mighty men, the kings and so forth, ran and hid their face and hid themselves under the rocks of the mountains. And they said this, they said, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. In other words, this is a future wrath that is coming on all of those who reject Jesus Christ. Now, that's the bad news. And it's very, very bad. But there's good news. And the good news is, if you know Christ, you will be rescued from this. You will not go through the wrath of God. That's why it says this. Look again at 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to wrap it up here now in just a few moments. It says in verse 6 and 7, let me read it again just for our hearing so we understand the flow of it. It reads this way in verse 6. After all, it is a right or just thing with God to repay or to pay back with tribulation and affliction those who have afflicted you. Now verse 7. See the conjunction and? And goes back. It is a righteous thing with God then also to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. So when Jesus comes, he's coming to judge, but he's also coming to rescue. He's coming to take his own to be with him. He will repay the wicked, yes, but he will rescue the righteous. We've already learned that God is righteous and holy and just to give out judgment. We know that. But also, listen to this, it is right and just and holy for God to rescue his own. And the reason is this, I mean, because it would be absolutely unholy and unrighteous and unjust for God to allow one of his children to be experiencing the wrath of God. And the reason why is because Jesus Christ took upon himself the wrath that we deserve. If we were to go and experience the wrath of God, that would mean that Jesus, what he did on the cross was not sufficient. That would mean we've got some sin we've got to pay for somewhere along the way. That's why the doctrine of purgatory is such a slap in the face of Christ. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't pay for some of your sin. He didn't pay for just the, lot, the ones that he likes to take care of. He paid for all of your sin. All of your past sin, all of your present sin, and all of the sin you're going to commit in the future. 
Every bit of it was laid on him. And then the Bible tells us that he became sin for us so that we could become what? The righteousness of God in Christ. That becomes a fact of scripture that you and I have been fully atoned for by the death of Christ on the cross. Therefore, it is literally another way of saying this. It is impossible that God would ever allow or purpose or plan that any of his believers would end up under the wrath of God. You are totally, absolutely exempt from it. You will never go through it. That's why Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, that God did not appoint us to wrath, but listen to this, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation, we often think of the word that we're saved from our sin. I got saved last week or last month or last year. But this word salvation is the same word, but it doesn't mean that in that sense. The word actually is defined by being delivered. Whenever you're saved, you're delivered. Whenever you're saved, you're delivered from the penalty of sin. You're delivered from the power of sin. You're eventually delivered from the very presence of sin. And also you are delivered from the wrath of God. That's what the point is. You are delivered from the wrath of God. Now, what I am not telling you is this. I am not telling you that you are exempt from persecution. That's a total different thing. In fact, we are promised persecution. Those who live godly will suffer persecution. Not only has God, according to Philippians 1, granted us faith, but he's granted us suffering and persecution. That's the one part of the Bible we don't necessarily care for. But the point is, we are, we are promised persecution, but we are promised also to be delivered from the wrath of God. We will not experience it. And this is what God has done. He's proven himself over and over again that he will never allow his own to experience his supernatural wrath, either on this planet or in hell. How do I know that? Well, there's examples like Noah. I mean, Noah was saved by the grace of God and his family. Everyone else died under the wrath of God, but not Noah and his family. You have Lot. Lot was taken out with his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah before God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Then you have the Israelites in Egypt, the judgments that came down on Egypt. It's most amazing if you go back and read the text, you'll find out that many times in that text, God makes it very clear that the judgments that came on the Egyptians and Pharaoh did not come on the Israelites. Like for instance, the flies, you remember those? The judgment of the plague of flies, these swarms of flies came into the rooms and the areas where the Egyptians lived, but they did not come into the rooms and the areas where the Israelites lived. You try that at your house. See how that works. The reason why is because verse 23 says in Exodus 9, God says, I will make a difference between my people and those people. I'm going to show who's mine and who's not. Also, the cattle. All the cattle of the Egyptians, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the oxen, the sheep, received a severe pestilence. But all the livestock of Israel were not attacked, had no disease. Again, because it was going to make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. And even the hail, the plague of hail that came on Egypt, it says in Exodus 9.26, that only in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were, where Israel was, it says there was no hail. It held everywhere in Egypt, but not in Goshen. And this is the one that amazes me the most. Even though the flies is pretty close, but this is an amazing one too. 
the thick darkness that came on the land of Egypt. It even says in the book of Exodus that the darkness was so dark it, you could feel it. That doesn't mean literally feel it, but it just means it's just that dark. You could not see anything at all. It was completely dark. It even says in the text that Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was a thick darkness in all of the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, it says, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. It was so dark, you didn't want to get up and move because you couldn't see anything. But then it says this, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. They had LED lights, that's what happened, right? No, God in his miraculous power literally separated darkness, pitch black darkness from light. I would have loved to have seen that. Could you imagine walking up on the border where the fence is in Goshen? Right over the borders, Egypt right there, pitch black. But then there's light right here where I'm farming. God has the ability to do so. And of course, we know the uh, firstborn, right? He killed all the firstborn of Egypt, but then he protected the people of Israel. But not just protected them, but protected them through the blood of the lamb, right? Which is a picture of Christ to come. Then you have Rahab. Rahab was in Jericho. The entire walls of Jericho fell except where Rahab was. Archaeologists have went over and discovered to this day. They actually can verify that that's true. That there was a place, they don't know if it was Rahab's, but there's a place where there was a room that was intact, that did not fall. They've proven that. It's an amazing thing to consider, but whenever you are a believer, you will not experience the wrath of God. You will be rescued from the wrath of God. That's why it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, that he is not only going to judge the unrighteous, but he will give you who are troubled rest when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and he's coming to do what? To bring vengeance and to punish the ungodly. But he's coming in verse 10, look at it, to be glorified in his saints and admired among all those who believe. The word admired is the word thamadzo. It means to be absolutely astonished, marvel at all this is for a purpose. And it really gets down to the end of it all. The reason why God is doing all of this is to make you and I marvel at him. To worship him. To glorify him. To admire him. To be eternally grateful for all that he has done for us. Well, I'm going to close this in prayer and then I'm going to turn it over to David. He's going to lead us in our Lord's Supper tonight, okay? So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for our time together tonight. We thank you, Lord God, for your marvelous grace, your mercy that is new every day. Lord, we are here tonight because we are those who have experienced by your own sovereign pleasure, grace, unmerited favor, undeserved mercy. And Lord, we thank you so much for that. We know that in the future, Lord, we have nothing to fear no matter what may come upon this world, we have nothing to fear because you are our God. You love us. You, you gave your life for us through Christ and you have given us perfect righteousness. And we praise your name for that. In Jesus' name, amen.